Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness webcast, Top Policy Trends and an Outlook for 2019, held on January 31, 2019. The panelists for the webcast were Scott McCandless, a partner in PwC's Tax Policy Services practice, John Lieber, a partner in PwC's National Economics and Statistics Group, Allison Cutler, the leader of PwC's Strategic Policy Advisors Practice, and Janice Mays, a managing director in PwC's Tax Policy Services Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion of recent economic and budget data. Have a listen. Maybe we can start a little bit into some of the economic numbers. Like we said at the top, we want to make sense of some of the, the noise out there and kind of quiet the, the conversation a little bit. And you had started a moment ago talking about the highway trust run, running out of money. Certainly money is a major issue, and as we can see on this slide, it will continue to be so. Yeah, so like Janet, Janet said, you know, there's people in Congress who want to do a lot of things. There's mm-hmm. a lot of priorities, competing priorities, and there's also a lot of spending that's already kind of baked into the cake that's going to keep rising as the population ages as military commitments get stretched overseas, there's just a lot of money that's going, the federal government is set to spend a lot of money over the next 10 years. And if you look at the kind of the the, the trends, you know, the CBO's baseline trend for spending projects that they're gonna spend about, the US government's gonna spend about 22% of GDP on average over the next 10 years. And they're only gonna collect 17.5% of GDP on average in revenue. So that gap, that about 4.5% gap, is the average deficit over the next 10 years, and you can see this up on this slide. You want to- a little higher than the national average, or excuse me, the historic Historical, average. Historical, yeah, so on the on the revenue side, it's a, exactly, uh, yeah, the for last 40 years has been about 17.4% of GDP on average collected. On the spending side, you've been at 20%, you're going up to 22% right around there, and on the deficit side, you've been around 2%, now you're going up to 4.5%. So you're, you, you know, this is, there's people, there's an argument, a partisan argument, do we ha- does the U.S. government have a spending problem, or does the U.S. government have a revenue problem? And the answer is both. You're making spending <laughs> commitments that are growing faster than the economy, and you've committed your revenue level to be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So because of that, you have this large and growing gap in deficits. That's the delta. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so to that, you know, you've got spending commitments that are growing, and then so these numbers here show the CBO uh, projections of, of of debt deficit annual deficits, mm-hmm. and right now we're at about 78 percent debt to GDP ratio. Uh, under current law, which mean, assumes that a lot of the spending that's happening today is clawed back, and a lot of the tax policies that are in place today, the tax cuts go away, you end up at the end of the 10-year budget window at about 93% debt-to-GDP ratio. If you assume current policy stays in effect, which I think is probably a pretty safe assumption, even if it's only, let's say, 80% Everybody of loves to extend fun things. Yeah, the tax cuts, <laughs> the tax cuts live past their expiration date, yeah. the new spending that was increased under President Trump Goes, goes on at inflation, essentially, you're at 105% of GDP, which is higher than we've ever had during peacetime, highest level um, since World War II. And the unusual thing here is that the deficit levels are large, 5 or 6% of GDP by 2029, and growing. So you're going to be going to 7% of GDP, and, and there's no sign of that, there's no inflection point. Now, contrast that to the situation in 2000, where at the time, debt to GDP was about 40%. And because we were projected to have surpluses, that was going to go down, projected to go down over the 10-year window to 6%. Today, we're at 78%, projecting to go up to 105% of GDP. So more debt, debt larger than the size of the economy is where we're headed. Every so time John, I visit John and say how scary this is, he says other countries are much worse than we are. That's true. So Japan's been running very large deficits for a long time. 
um, uh, other uh, and European countries have a lo large level of deficits. But you know, there's never been a country as large as important with the world's reserve currency with these kind of deficits that have grown uh, the way the U.S. is anticipating them, which you is why people are watching. This. And you haven't left yourself a lot to do if there is a, a, a depression or mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Right. So I was just going to ask John, um, based on sort of Janice's comment, which I agree with, which is. Um, you know, these things are likely to continue um, because once, you know, it's a lot harder to pull happy things back. What what could change this? Like, what are there things that could happen that could um, external events or or something political or, or what do you see as a potential that we don't go down that path? Yeah, I mean, on, the honest answer is I have no idea. No one has any idea, right? So it's like there's a couple like this could go on for a lot longer than anyone anticipates. Mm -hmm. We have very low interest rates. Um, you know, the Treasury is able to finance the deficits, annual deficits of a trillion dollars or more at very low rates. If right somehow now. they start going up, if, then they start eating a bigger part of the government spending yeah. and crowding other things even more. Sometimes that grows a deficit hawk or two. So in the 90s, which was kind of the last time we had major concerns about debt and deficits as a politically salient issue, mm -hmm. uh, the interest, net interest costs as a for the federal government was about 3% of GDP mm -hmm. and about 17% of spending. Today, all, all spending, right. which is almost the same amount we were spending on defense. So you have our you know, military and our interests spending the same amount. Today, we're spending about 1.5% of GDP and about 7% of all federal spending. So it's a much lower level. So that's why, I mean, that's part of the reason there's very little political pressure mm -hmm. is because net interest costs just aren't crowding out that much spending. They aren't really having any strong economic effects right now. Rates are low across the economy. Businesses are able to borrow very cheaply. One of the theories as to why uh, deficits are a problem is because they start to crowd out private sector investment and borrowing, and that's simply not happening. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the reason there's no political pressure. Now, the fear here you know, is that one day we wake up and, and, and there's no willingness to finance U.S. debts anymore, and suddenly interest rates spike and Congress has to respond to do something. And that's, you know... Congress loves a crisis and, and, and also kind of tends to wait for action forcing events to respond. So in my mind, you're going to have to wait till you get to that point before anything is done. And, and entitlement reform really takes bipartisanship to work. And we're in a country that's not ready to be bipartisan and solve those things at this point. And we're also, I think, on both sides, although some of these presidential candidates are talking about taxing people more, you really don't have a country that's willing to pay a lot more through the income tax, and yet we're not ready to start talking about alternative sources of revenue either. So we have a lot of things. We're hitting these hurdles pretty quickly, and I'm not certain as a nation we're ready to be educated to try to see what our alternatives are and make rational decisions. But the proposals you are seeing, like looking at the Democratic primary, are all on the tax side. So Absolutely. you're seeing wealth taxes, Absolutely. clawing back parts of the tax. They have a lot of spending act. they want to do, so yeah. they, they don't want to just be spenders. Mm -hmm. And President Trump has kind of made some noises that he's going to direct the agencies to cut spending, but those proposals haven't really materialized. So you know, very little pressure on the federal government finances right now, despite these dire predictions, but very little kind of serious efforts to do anything from the political arena. Right. So could we focus for a moment really tightly on the implications of these numbers on specific tax policies, because there are parts of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that do expire, that do change over time. Uh, with CFC look-through rule this year, the change from EBITDA to EBIT and the interest deduction limitation, uh, expensing has a change. Even the research credit goes to capitalization and amortization. So there are a lot of things, and that's before we get to the complete expiration of the entire individual, individual side, side of the right. code. Mm -hmm. So there are some big issues out there. 
How do you think this plays out given these numbers? So CBO estimated that to extend, so all the policies you're talking about were things done in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that were designed to reduce the score. Mm -hmm. They were revenue raisers essentially that made it less expensive to pass this piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. And as we get closer to those deadlines, the impact on individual individuals and businesses of these essentially tax increases are going to get really, really important and start to be really painful. Mm -hmm. CBO estimates that you need about $3.5 trillion today to extend all these policies um, on the spending side and the, and the tax side mm -hmm. um, over the next 10 years. So, um, you know, I think that there's, there's very little desire to do anything about any of these uh, until we get to the deadlines. So as we get closer to the end of 2019, people are going to start paying attention to the CFC look-through rule and talking about ways to get it done. And this gets to the question as to whether or not there can be any bipartisan tax legislation this year. Who knows? Yeah. I think the real deadline that really bites is the exp expiration of the individual provisions, which affects you know, 80, 90 percent of taxpayers, mm -hmm. middle class taxpayers, um, low income taxpayers. It's going to affect a lot of people who no one wants to see taxes go up on. Mm -hmm. And no matter what the state of the economy is at that time, you'd expect that there's going to be some bipartisan support for extending those, as there was in 2010 and 2012 when the Bush tax cuts similarly passed under a reconciliation bill that caused them to expire, were extended on a bipartisan basis. The exception, but very little very at the top. Very little at the top, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we can talk a little bit about that economic outlook. And this is not only the overall economic outlook, but also somewhat a, an argument for or against the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the extent to which its theory of driving long-term growth and investment will play out. So maybe we can talk about where we see growth going. Yeah, so you know this this chart is is um, historic. Look at historical uh, annual real GDP growth, and then looking at the forecast ahead. You can see in 2018, this is kind of the expected final numbers for 2018. 2.9% was a bit above trend growth in recent years, and was considered a very strong year. Uh, very low unemployment, and the economy is really booming right now. But you know the most forecaster, forecasters are predicting are saying that part of that was the stimula stimulative short short-term stimulative effect of the tax cuts. And that's going to fade as the tax cuts kind of go back to get normed in. And so you see a return to trend growth of around 1.9%. Mm -hmm. And you know, for the proponents of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the argument in favor of it was that you know, the U.S. has become not competitive uh, because our corporate tax rate is so high. We're not attracting investment the way we should be by cutting the corporate tax rate and making other kind of favorable changes to spur investment you should see more investment in the U.S., mm -hmm. which should in turn lead to productivity growth, which should drive wage growth and ultimately economic growth. Mm -hmm. And I think looking out three years to 2020, or two years, next year, I guess, to 2020, um, during the presidential campaign and beyond that, judging the ultimate success of TCJA will be about how successful was it at driving investment in the United States. And there are and, things we can look at to make that determination. And there'll be answers that both sides like and answers that both sides hate. Yeah, and, and of course, given the enormous amount of data, you can tell you can probably tell whatever story you want. But there's going to be a couple things like you know, uh, a non-residential investment. Um, there's going to be some concrete things we can look at to judge the success of this. Bill. Democrats will look back to wage growth. Mm -hmm. Did yeah. it actually grow? Or was it just those early bonuses right. that the work? What kind of went down to the worker in this context? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, jury's out so far. There's been some good news and some not so good news on it. But I think we really have to wait a couple of years out to properly judge uh, the effect of this. That'll be the problem. We'll have a short-term political event, the 2020 election, but to truly judge this, we might have to wait till 10 years from now, mm -hmm. yeah, 2025 right. and, that, and that's beyond. ultimately going to determine the future of the corporate tax rate at 21%, whether or not it goes up. If the bill is considered successful, then you know that's going to give a lot more comfort to companies that want to keep the rate where it is. Mm -hmm. If the bill was considered a failure because wages aren't growing or investment did not boom, then it's going to be a lot easier to say, well, you know, this bill was sold under false pretenses and we should raise this rate.
There's one other topic about the, uh, the fiscal path that I thought was interesting, and that has to do with a, a paper that came out recently talking about the extent to which deficits might not matter. Uh, or at least given interest well, rate situations. Yeah, so they don't matter as much that. as maybe we thought they mattered. Sure. So you know, the theory okay. that I mentioned earlier is that high interest rates, or high borrowing by the federal government mm -hmm. leads to higher interest rates, which eventually will crowd out private investment and lead to less investment, lower growth. And what we've seen over the last 30 years is this slow decline in the borrowing, in interest rates across the economy and the borrowing rates for the federal government. There's a lot of reasons for this. One reason is ample foreign financing of U.S. debt. You know, the Chinese are, are, are saving a lot of money and buying up a lot of our treasuries. Another one is um, you know, we've been in kind of a deflationary low growth environment. The Fed has obviously kept rates incredibly low in the wake of the um, financial crisis. And so because of that, we can borrow very cheaply right now. So there was an article published in Foreign Affairs this week by Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary under Sec uh, President Clinton, uh, President Obama's top economic advisor at the be beginning of the administration, Jason Furman, who's been a long time kind of Democratic campaign advisor and was eventually President Obama's CEA chairman. So, you know, you know, very solid, respected thinkers in the economic policy space, arguing that the economic costs of debt are not what we thought they were 20 years ago. Um, one of the uh, pieces of evidence they cite for this is this declining interest rate. So we're borrowing a lot more than we did 20 years ago but we're borrowing more cheaply than we did 20 years ago. And so because of that, maybe we have to rethink our attitude towards debt and deficits, and maybe in certain, cer certain circumstances, it's okay for a country like the U.S. to run big fiscal deficits. So. Especially if you're spending that money on investments. <coughs> right, right. That, that in the long run will return like infrastructure. Yeah, so in the piece they argue that any new, most new spending should be paid for, and they come up with some ideas for increasing the tax, in some case tax rates, in some case expanding the tax base through a carbon tax, for example. Um, so, you know, most new spending should be paid for with revenue increases, but there's some spending that doesn't need to be paid for, particularly um, if the economy is bad, if you need to kind of prime the pump uh, during a recession, and infrastructure, something that may have a rate of return that gets you some of your money back. Now, interestingly, they also argue for dynamic scoring, which Republicans have said on the spending side. Republicans have long said, when you cut taxes, you get growth. The traditional CBO, JCT scoring doesn't account for that growth in its score, so you actually get a little more, it's not as bad as it looks. Mm -hmm. And Summers and Furman are saying, that's true on the spending side too. If you increase certain kinds of spending, you get a multiplier effect. That means that spending does not cost you what you think it costs. It's actually more affordable. And the Congressional Budget Office gave a dynamic spending score for an immigration bill during the Obama administration. That was a pretty comprehensive, big immigration package. And because it was so big, they gave a score that it, that it all the dollars it might have cost otherwise, because the economy would have broader feedback from it, that it would grow the economy. So, so there is an argument to be made that the Congressional Budget Office might look and, and figure out a way to score an infrastructure package that was really big. Yeah, and I think there's a couple of pieces of this that we're going to hear about this year. One is, one Janice pointed out, that maybe you don't need to pay for infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, two is this idea of dynamic scoring. And then third is, you know, maybe deficits aren't so bad. And I think this is really going to affect, you know, presidential candidates for 2020. I think this is going to affect how people think about, you know, our spending path that we're on. Yeah. And it's to also, get this done, it may take all three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, and I think that also takes some of the pressure off reforming the entitlement programs, which I think is going to be a big, you know, sea change over the last 15 years or so from when President Bush started looking at this issue. And now it's, you know, President Trump has essentially said, no, we're not going to cut a dime out of these things. And so, you know, we'll just borrow, basically. Right. 
And if that becomes kind of okay, then that takes a lot of the pressure off those changes. Yeah, it makes sense. So there's some good news in there, but maybe we're putting off a day of reckoning. Well, we don't know. That's the thing. So it's a, it's a gamble, right? We're so always putting off a yeah, day of reckoning. That's true. You know, the fiscal crisis is always 10 years away, right? So it's right. never, we haven't got there yet. There's no, it hasn't, hasn't been one in U.S. history. Um, and if and, is there a way to put it off, you will. Right. And it's a risk. I mean, look, rates are low right now, but if they go up for whatever reasons, you know, China starts, China rejiggers its economy so domestic consumption is more attractive <laughs> than uh, savings and they stop buying our treasury bonds the fed finds that the policy neutral rate is higher than what it is today they have to raise, raise rates some more yeah. borrowing costs spike and then all of a sudden this is not a sustainable thing so you've got to kind of recalibrate as you go here unfortunately it's never boring thank you for listening to this podcast if you would like more information about this topic please contact the speakers their contact information is in the description of this episode thank you Thank you.